Welcome to the All Creation Podcast, everybody. I'm Chris Searles. I'm the co-founder and executive editor of the All Creation Project. I am extremely excited to welcome both my co-host, Reverend Jimmy Calhoun, and our special guest here today, Mr. Scott Sabin, the pioneering leader of plantwithpurpose.org. These are two great men, in my humble opinion, and in my model of what greatness is, which is to say, these guys are bridging the best aspects of our identities here on earth into a more equally cared for community. They are creating kinship and regenerative relationships and moving us forward. Now, a little bit about my co-host, Jimmy, or Reverend Calhoun, or Cal, as some of his friends call him. He and I live in the same town here in Texas, and he is a mentor to many of us. But Jimmy is unique as a mentor in that he is constantly pursuing what I would call an egalitarian friendship with each of the people he encounters and interacts with. Whether or not they know that, whether or not they reciprocate that, he pursues true equality amongst all of us. And I, I think he does this because of his Christian beliefs about the creation and all creation. Reverend Calhoun also has an exceptional background He's just completed his fifth book. It's due out before the end of the year, I believe. He's one of the most important musicians in pop music history. He played on numerous classic albums and, and songs in the 60s and 70s and was a formative influencer in funk and the related genres in his early life, in his teens and 20s. And then in his 30s, he shifted into ministry about 40 years ago. And Jimmy has since worked with Brian McLaren and ministered internationally and pioneered efforts to bring worship to the disabled and the unseen, and in these books about deracializing the church, and so much more. So, Jimmy, thank you for being here. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Scott Saban. Scott is leading an organization that's addressing some of the most complex social problems in the world, and he's doing it at large scale through multifaceted empowerments. And I'll let Scott explain what that is from Plant With Purpose's perspective, what empowerments are as a form of mission. When we started this Called to Care series about a year ago, I really hadn't thought whether or not there was a person who exemplified this idea of leading with care. And I came up with a sort of a, a quick mnemonic today for what I mean by care. Curious, appropriate, responsive, empathetic, nurturing, relational, forward-looking help for ourselves and each other and the other members of the creation, looking at our potential. And so Scott's organization under his leadership has been, in my opinion, rooted in care-based strategies and philosophies and plans and beliefs and investments, essentially asking, I think, Scott, all along in his career, how do we best help these people given the resources we have? And so it is my great pleasure to welcome Scott Saban. He, like so many people who are listening to this and watching this, who are leading in the world every day and the things they do, Scott has really chosen to succeed through helping others. And in Scott's case, this means building teams and communities in multiple countries in the most isolated and impoverished regions of the world. He's been doing this for about 30 years now. So let me read you his official bio and then I'll get out of the way. Scott is CEO of Plant With Purpose an international Christian organization that empowers the poor in rural areas around the world where poverty is caused by deforestation. Under Scott's leadership, 
the organization has grown from a single program in one country to a staff of hundreds of care providers, foresters, agronomists, pastors, and facilitators now in nine countries who then empower regenerative farmers in hundreds of communities in developing countries. Plant with Purpose has planted over 60 million trees now in its 40 years, mostly under Scott's leadership. And in so doing, they have dramatically reduced poverty and its effects where the resources are needed most for these people. Prior to working with Plant with Purpose, Scott served for seven years in the US Navy. He holds degrees in political science and international relations. His wife is a nurse practitioner who's also served internationally. They have two children. And thanks to everyone who is listening and watching. Thanks again to Jimmy and Scott for being here. I think all of us understand that we are in the midst of an era of extremely overwhelming, as in too many at once, complex social and personal problems. And part of the issue today is that people don't know how to act effectively. Scott is probably the best in the world at addressing poverty at large scale through ecological solutions that are rooted in a religious commitment to caring for the others in the creation. He's kind of the superstar of this idea of being called to care in terms of being globally impactful. So, Scott, thank you for being here. <laughs> thank you, Chris, and thank you, Jimmy. And, and um... I, yeah, I, I wouldn't claim any of those titles, but if you add enough qualifiers on it, the best in the world of people doing all those things who's in San Diego right now. Um, yeah, maybe if you qualify it down far enough, I might, but, uh, anyway, no, actually we stand on the shoulders of giants. And when I say that too, I'm thinking, it's easy to think of people I learned from who've been influences here in the United States. We mentioned Brian McLaren earlier. We mentioned, uh, well, we haven't mentioned, but I think of Tony Campolo and John Perkins and others. But the ones that I really want to call out are our partners in Haiti or Mexico or Dominican Republic. Literally everything we're doing now we learned from our local partners at some point. Our director in Tanzania taught us how to use savings groups. Um, Jean-Marie uh, Dezo, as we call him, taught us how to work with people and work alongside people. So um, really, when I'm talking about giants, I'm talking about them. Yes, the the people in these communities that, that you're working with. I was going to say, you know, sort of as a observer comment and thinking of you each as bridging leaders, Jimmy's church is actually called Bridging Austin, but this idea of you going from the developed world to the undeveloped world to help is so important in a lot of the conversations Jimmy and I have had in terms of doing it well from the perspective of the helped, the people who are receiving the help, but then also, you know, you're helping sort of show to people in the developed world what it is to learn from the undeveloped world people, the experts outside of our culture of academia, materialism, and so forth. I would love it if you could talk about that a little bit, but I think it's really important. I think it's important for people in the developed world to understand that we have so much to learn from everyone. 
well, yeah, it is. And it is so easy to approach things as if we had the answers. And I think that's been part of my learning experience in 30 years is realizing first that we didn't have all the answers. You know, we saw, and I, I got to give our founder a lot of credit, saw this connection between um, environmental degradation and rural poverty. I, I personally was interested in, you know, how can we help people living in, you know, places like the the shanty towns outside of Santo Domingo, Dominican Republic, or Port-au-Prince, Haiti, and then realizing that so many of them, the vast majority, were essentially refugees from the countryside, people who made their living as farmers for generations, and that they were actually coming to those shanty towns because they represented hope, represented a better opportunity. And so going up upstream, literally and figuratively, you know, from an ecological perspective, you know, we were literally going upstream to the mountains, but also to the source of some of the problems, realizing this connection between the degradation of the land and extreme poverty. Then along the way, realizing that we only had a very narrow piece of the story and to really understand the story, it needed to be much more of an equal exchange and much more dialogue. Just to give a, I guess, a sense of, of what we do after many years, we use something we call a purpose group, but it's based on savings groups, which allow 20 to 30 families to gather together and mobilize their savings. And I can go into more detail on any of these things. So we don't consider that we do relief, but we rather do development work. And we used to do microfinance where we'd make loans. And again, it was our director in Tanzania, Edith, who was talking to me about the fact that she was having a hard time teaching agriculture. People didn't want to come to our seminars and they didn't want to come to any Bible studies because they all felt like they owed us money because we were making these microfinance loans. So she researched and found the savings group model, which we didn't develop, but she found other organizations using it and brought it to my attention. She says, Scott, it's so beautiful. You know, we don't give them any money. And these women will come and they'll bring 25 cents a week. And, and I have to admit, I was a total skeptic at that point. I said, come on, eat it 25 cents a week. How's that ever going to amount to anything? But she ran a couple pilots and it was absolutely amazing how that empowered people and how they gained a much greater sense of agency and today we have about, I think it's about 4,000 of those groups worldwide, those savings groups, with a combined total of $12 million that they're investing in their own communities. Money that belongs to them, they raise themselves, they're investing it, and they're making about an 18 to 18 to 20% return on their investments in their own communities, in their own businesses, in their own neighbors. So that was that was sort of the one of the first building blocks and then that group we used to teach regenerative agriculture and agroforestry so most of the trees that have been planted 
have been planted by farmers on their farms because they make sense to restore soil, to halt erosion, to provide fruit, to provide other products, including firewood and timber. But they're planting the trees for their own use on their own farms. And that's now, I think, where almost 62 million trees have been planted by our participants. And, and then the third part is that those groups often become uh, spiritual communities. And we offer assistance to the local churches and we offer training around care of God's creation and purpose and identity in Jesus and reconciliation. So that's it in a nutshell. That's really beautiful. And maybe we can transition over to talking about this idea of inclusivity, kind of inclusivity that Jimmy and I have been talking about, meaning I've been listening and learning from Jimmy about his new book and and what he's been thinking about is far broader than uh, the sort of current political conversation on this meeting. So Jimmy, could you maybe pick it up and and talk about this idea and well, I, I think that it's multi-pronged, actually, and, and ironically, as we as we spoke earlier, and Scott and I shared a little uh, a connection through Central America, and uh, he being in Guatemala and, and myself becoming an embedded Christian missionary to the country of Belize is where I sort of had my eyes open to two things, uh, poverty, as well as, uh, I hate to say, but Western arrogance. I went down very sure and certain of myself, and uh, I thought I was going to lift, because that's what I'd been taught in in the seminary that you go down, it's redemption and lift. You go down and you, you bring something to them and you elevate. And after about two or three years, I realized that I had more to learn from them than they had to learn from me. And uh, the first thing that I learned was to actually value people as they, as you find them. And, and that's a hard thing to do. And I can tell you one, one quick story. I was supposed to identify a, a, a national, I think as they were called then, and then uh, establish a church and identify this one person to take over for me. And I would go ahead and move on to, uh, I think it was Jamaica at the time or something. So I found this Maya guy. And I found he was out doing lawn work one day. And I, I used to run and I'd run by and I, and I noticed him. So every morning I was out running, he was out doing some lawn. And I, and so I, I said, you're out here every morning? He goes, yeah. And he says, I said, well, what's your name? He says, my name's Landy. I said, oh, I heard Jimmy. So I said, yeah, my name's Jimmy, too. And he thought, oh, well, you're the first guy I've ever met that had the same name as me. So we became famous friends. And in my living room, he was telling me he had this vision for out by the Guatemalan border at a place called Cayo, uh, close to Melcher that he wanted to establish a Christian camp and bring all these, except he didn't have any education. So after three or four years, the 
the the bosses, my bosses, came down from Los Angeles to meet the guy I'd identified to take my my place. And they came down, and then we're sitting in my living room, and I introduced him to this guy. He's about five foot five, and he's not very sophisticated, and he just come from work, and his clothes are so. And they looked at him, and they looked at me, and you could the air left the room. And what they didn't realize that this guy was entrepreneurial is all get out. He just came in different packaging and they were used to, and he had a use of different vocabulary. And right then I realized that you need to learn to value, not only give them dignity, ascribe dignity to them, but value every single human being that you come in contact with, every single one irrespective of you know, gender, skin color, height, uh, vocabulary, nationality, you know, all of those adjectives just need to go by the wayside. And that changed everything for me. And so that's been the mission of bridging. And typically the response I get or the pushback is that, well, you're naive. Or you're an old hippie and you think we can the world can just be full of love and everybody sing kumbaya or something like that. And I know you're really missing the point. There is so much for you to enjoy about every human being that you come in contact every day with that you're actually missing. I'm trying to do you a favor by <laughs> by, by uh, alerting you to something. I mean, there's just a beauty. And so um, what we're trying to do is become more than a church that invites, because that typically sounds like you're, you're sending them an invitation to an event. We're trying to welcome people. And the kind of welcome we mean is taking their taking them as who they are and and t- taking their needs and wants into consideration. And we're there to serve them. They're not to be plugged into our church, which, <laughs> which was a lot of the vocabulary. Huh? You, you got to invite people and plug them in. Well, you know, I do that to my light switch and my guitar and my amp, but I'm never going to plug a human being in. I'm going to welcome it welcome them in and so we've de- we've developed this new model which is is disconcerting for a lot of people here because they don't know how they don't know really what they're supposed to do and they've never lived outside of the country where you're forced to i mean when you when you when you get in when you're inserted into a different culture you have two things you have a two choices and either try to convert them to what you are bringing to them or allow yourself to be stretched a little bit and uh, be converted to their way of living. And so that's been the thing for for Bridging Austin. And I I was struck by something that Scott said earlier. And and from a a straight mission uh, context, it was beautiful. He says, we had to learn when we were hurting people more so than we were helping. And from my background, being a denominational missionary guy, had I had those, had I had that sentence in when, what year did I go? 1991. 
just to to alert people that there's a possibility when you go into the, you're sending out all these missionary units that you know you better reevaluate and be sensitive and 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 humble. So if I could say two things about bridging Austin, it's sensitivity and humility. I mean those are those are uh, our bywords. I love that. Yeah. I think humility is probably one of the most important things. In, in many of the countries where we work, there's a real um, prejudice against subsistence farmers. Um, you know, they were the ones who were not smart enough to go to school, wouldn't, uh, you know, couldn't get jobs, stayed behind a lot of times they're uh they're um stigmatized by their own their own governments as backward i mean you sometimes you see that here in the u.s as well but um but there it's to the degree that i think people almost take that on as an identity you know and so the the idea that god gives everybody gifts everybody talents and we know that and that they're created with purpose. And um, it one of the most gratifying things to me has seen is been seeing people come alive as they realize their talents and realize what they have to offer. We we use the phrase all the time, um, the people we work with are our partners, not our projects. And um yeah, I think that's that's probably one of our most important learnings and one of our most important messages. Once we realize that, like like you said, Jimmy, we have as much to learn from them, uh, or more than we have to offer, and it's in working together that anything's accomplished. Yeah, that that bias against uh, well subsistence farmers or people who lack education we we went down, there weren't very many cars when we went to belize you know there they just hadn't been the you know there there weren't there and uh so we took down a, a, a zuzu trooper which there were only four others in the country oh and, wow and most and most of the cars there didn't have duplicates so you know there wasn't a a, a car parts store that was stocking a lot of things on the shelves in hopes of some customer, future customer needing it. Our car broke one time and there was a guy around the corner. He wore a, like a coolie hat, this rigged round hat. Yeah. And he worked on cars and I took it over to him and he says, well, I have to call Napa parts and it'll take about six weeks. I said, okay, well, you know, Belize city was small enough and we, we had difficulty finding places to go to entertain ourselves because it's only four miles square. So, you you know, there wasn't. So about three days later, he, uh, he comes over and he says, your car's ready. And I said, well, I thought you needed to wait six weeks for the part. He says, yeah, but then I looked at it again and I figured I'd just make one. So I made a part. And 
And I know that had I taken him, had I gotten on a plane and I brought him back to the States and introduced him to all my educated friends, they would have looked at, at uh, Castillo and looked at him and said, what's up with this guy? Yeah. Except that he had the two, he was used to living in an atmosphere where if you needed something, you had to have you had to be resourceful enough to do it. And so the ingenuity doesn't come from what regurgitating what came in. It comes from <laughs> from from your observation and what you're able to do with what you see. So there's a right. creative element, <laughs> and you know. The, so it, it, it's it's. Yeah, I'll just leave it there. That's a great story. Yeah, it's true. I, I think, you know, a lot of times we have all of these advantages and uh, and we tend to own those as if they were part of who we are. You know, the, the old story of the guy who is, uh, um, oh, I'm trying to remember how it goes. The guy who was uh, born on third base and thought he'd hit a triple or something. I don't remember exactly how that goes anyway. <laughs> but no, you, you most of us couldn't survive Correct. In, in the environments that, um, you know, so people who, you know, we might look at as uneducated or that might be discriminated against by their own governments are incredibly resourceful and, are, and, are, and you know, are managing to survive in in conditions that would kill us. And, um, and they've got a lot to teach us. Yeah. And I, I guess that, that runs... Uh on the same rails is why we have a tendency to objectify everything. It's just, uh, you know, we, we, we like the planet we're living on and other human beings, they become objects to use and to produce and consume. And that, that ever ending cycle of almost like what's in it for me or us collectively in my small little bubble. And that doesn't seem to, bode well for from from uh, a guy who believes that the created order with being a christian is not a matter of receiving but there's a level of responsibility that comes inherent with it attached you yeah. know as soon as i say that word that means i'm putting people on notice that i have a responsibility to love you as you are to serve you when I can and to love you, whatever it is that you need. And that's, 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 uh, that's what I mean. And bridging means when we say the word Christian and it I does, love it. yeah. It, so. I, I, I've become convinced that part of our purpose is to serve others that that's, and one of the most exciting things to me is watching um, some of the people we work with discover their purpose. There's a story um, from one of my first visits to uh, to Congo, and it was 2017, I think, 2016. And we were working in these three villages 
located along this uh, this steep river valley um, up into the mountains, really steep. And so it was the three-day walk up to the edge of the, the forest and back. And our local director, um, Birori, tells me, he says, Scott, there have not been a lot of outsiders in this area in, in decades because of the conflict. So we're going to draw a lot of curiosity. And it's okay. It's a public road. And so there are going to be a lot of people walking with us. Well, a public road was like a single track um, yeah. thing. But anyway, we had about 50 men follow us and camp with us on the edge of the forest on the last night. And Gurori um, tells me, he says, you know, the guy who's been carrying your, helping you carry your backpack for the last two days uh, used to be one of the guerrilla leaders. And uh, so I asked if I could interview him. So we sit down in, in this tent and um, he says uh, to me, you know, the, the men here didn't do much. We'd sit around and play cards um, while the women did all the work. And then your pastor came, and by our pastor, he was talking about a, a Congolese pastor, um, a guy by the name of Sibumana, who's like one of my heroes in the world. But then Sibumana came and started talking about work being a gift from God. And he says, and I thought, maybe if I help my wife on the farm, together we could do something great. And... Um, and he talked then about disarming the militia. And, and I'm coming from a, a kind of an evangelical background. I said, so did you become a Christian? Is that what changed? Said, no, I've always been a Christian. I just never realized it applied to the rest of my life. <laughs> I thought it was just about Sunday. And yeah. I've kept up with him more or less in the years since. And he's really discovered purpose discovered purpose in restoring the watershed that that he depends on and everybody downstream depends on and being an agent for reconciliation and peace. He's obviously as a guerrilla leader, he's got some charisma and he goes community to community preaching ideas of reconciliation. And I just, to me, it was like the, the aha moment for him was I realized I have gifts to offer. Wonderful story. It's beautiful. And I want to try to jump in and highlight one thing uh, for you guys to kind of bounce around a little bit. This um, this thing you said, Scott, that's so powerful. Um, and, you know, Jimmy is a craftsman, right? And, and, and so on and so forth. So this is one of the ways it ties together. Um, this idea that work is a gift. And, and kind of the context Jimmy and I are coming out of is that the American culture is, is you know, sort of oriented towards not helping itself right now and the work that you're doing is really setting a model so you know there's shame around work for a lot of people you shouldn't do labor these kinds of things that's for a lower class of person or something like that and the reality is you know it's a gift you can make the world as you wish you can build relationships it's not easy or anything but we should you know we should get back into a, i think a culture that takes pride and potential yeah, yeah. I'd be curious to hear your thoughts, Jimmy. Well, I we have a saying in, in the Iona community that in work and worship, uh, you find God, I, I guess. And uh, as it relates to just being, looking at the world holistically and thinking about 
that everything every everything you do it does have a purpose. It, it not, doesn't necessarily have to be identified as a job, but with that responsibility, of what you do even when you're off hours, there's there's a there's a job to do then, and there's work to be done twenty four seven. I guess is the way I would say it, and it, you would have to. De- I guess you define, redefine the word work because I don't see serving another person as work any longer. I mean, I, I, early on when I was getting a denominational paycheck, you know, they, they talked in terms of, well, you know, you got to put 60 hours in, but make sure you everything was quantified and they had a bracket for this. And since I left that world, it, you know, I'm on 24-7, and, and I never think of anything, any call I make or any conversation I have or anything like that as being work. And it, it's it's all geared towards improving the lives of somebody else in whatever, in whatever way they need it. And uh, Chris and I have a lot of conversations about music, and uh, the conversations we have don't really ever pertain to us becoming better players, but it makes us better people because we stretch ourselves and then we're only using the conversation about Miles Davis or Theolonius Monk for a broader purpose, you know, to get something else done. And that's, and that's how work can be as well. You know, so. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. I love it. I, you know, the, my thought is that, that, you know, I don't want to romanticize things. You know, if we look at the account in Genesis and the 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 fall, there's also a curse that comes with it, right? And and so you you can romanticize work. There's a lot. There's a lot of places and a lot of people where work is is drudgery or slavery or or serves no purpose or is abusive so i don't want to romanticize that but i do think that at its best and in the kingdom of god there's an alignment between purpose and what we do and that we are we were made to be co-creators and so that the point and, and I think for us, one of the exciting things about working with subsistence farmers is there is an opportunity for creativity in how you work with the land. So it 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 can be much more creative, per se, than than, you know, going to the city and trying to get a job in a garment factory. Again, I don't want to romanticize. It's hard being a subsistence farmer on a barren hillside you know, somewhere in uh, in East Africa is hard. And it, it, it's easy for me sitting here in a in a nice, cool place to romanticize it. And I don't want to do that. But yeah, there is that tension. I know exactly what you're saying. It's uh, it, it's the, this one lady in Belize that we call her the banana lady. And she the the, the bananas you bought, you, you, there were five either five or 10, I don't know if I remember, but you know, they, in the U.S. it's probably three cents. And she sat in this open market with, with it, like you can imagine, flies and excrement dogs. And I mean, just, and she sat there every day 
every single day. And Julian and I would go by and we would be the only people that stopped after we purchased our bananas and talked to her. And she looked forward to our coming every day because we'd spend 20 or 30 minutes with her and talk and nobody ever saw her as a person. They just saw her as somebody sitting there that had a commodity they needed. And um, her work wasn't very satisfying, but her work was very needed by the people there because otherwise they wouldn't eat. So I get this, um, uh, my whole concept of what, of the import, and even the, I guess the definition of work, uh, I know what you mean by not want to uh, romanticize, but we have a tendency to, we're very comparative by nature, I guess, in, in the West. In the last book, in, in my forthcoming book, I, I talk about how the indentured Irish came in early America, and they were doing basically the same jobs that the enslaved Africans were doing, in close proximity to each other, but even in that, they had to, they had to they had to make a distinction so that one felt elevated above the other. And and I just I I found besides the sadness that, that we would do that, I saw the humor in ourselves that we would even think to do that as as a culture as a society. So I you know work around the world is. Is what you said, Scott, is serving a purpose. The banana lady in Belize is serving the same purpose as the IBM exec here in Austin over here making the computer, the iPhone that I use. I guess I attributed, I should have said Apple. I got in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> now we're going to get blocked. Yeah, right. I don't, don't want to get sued for misappropriating a, a, a copyright infringement, but uh, yeah, that. Yeah, well, I think some of our work, <laughs> to use work in a different sense, some of our work is to is to bring good news of redemption and to offer redemptive opportunities. I mean, we're again, it's you know, I don't want to set ourselves up in as as the redeemers. We're not, but we can bring good good news of redemption and offer opportunities, I think, to redeem work. Yeah. Yeah, I appreciate all of that. The, you know, um, I got to go to Kenya in May um, with Sam and, and Melody from uh, Africa Exchange. Yeah. And it was my first time to see uh, colonization from the real inside of it. Uh, because they have a similar model. They go to these isolated communities. Um, and so to your point about work being, you know, extremely uh, oppressive uh, in, in places, you know, I, I do appreciate you guys both sort of bringing that out. Um, and then also I think, uh, you know, maybe we can shift over to talking a little bit more about poverty. Um, Jimmy asked this this really good question, you know, how Scott, do you define poverty in the, in the question that we are in the conversation he and I were having ahead of time. And, and then also in light of that sort of, um, 
you know, so in the Christian model, caring for the least of these can mean a lot of different things. So how you look at this, Scott, or, or how Plant With Purpose looks at this? Yeah, yeah. Well, and Jimmy, I, I, I see that you talk about poverty as a, a state of hopelessness. I, I have used that, yes. Yeah, yeah. I think that's um, that resonates with me. Um, I I I'm trying to remember whose literature I was reading, but comparing Western definitions of poverty, which tend to be a lot about lack of material things, correct, and and uh, those of the global South talking about poverty, and it tends to be much more. Um, attitude, you know, hopelessness, discouragement, embarrassment, um, yes. invisibility, all of those things. Um, I, so to me, one of the things I, I think is, is in this is my definition now is a, a lack of agency or perceived agency and opportunity which can can be closely connected to hopelessness if you're hopeless you don't you don't exercise what agency you might have I reckon that yeah yeah and one of the things that we do in our small groups is the very first question when the missional impulse hit the states about the early 2000s most of the churches here were into going out and serving you know, and serve, serve, and you found that on the website, you know, serving teams, serving opportunities, and we we were there as well, but the first, very first question I would ask our people is, what do you think about poverty? What does poverty mean to you when you hear that word? And for some reason, every time that word was broached, it would come back in economic terms. Mm -hmm. And like we're economic beings. Well, poverty has more components to it than economics. And so th that agency you're talking about and that hopelessness. And there are people I know from my recording industry uh, days that they were hopeless and impoverished solely inside of their soul and empty, even though they had everything at their disposal economically at, the, at their fingertips and so it's hard for people to, to realize that it that it is possible to be impoverished even while you even in the midst of what seems to be a lot you can be impoverished but conversely that hopelessness carries over and, and seems to intensify intensify excuse me when there's the the monetary component is is at factored in and how that plays out is attitudinally i mean uh, I, my first year in ministry i spent at the union rescue mission down in la and every week i would go down and and hang out with the guys all and it took me a long time to realize that they were acting just as they should. <laughs> they were hopeless. Everything, they were so far off the grid. You know, I thought I could come down and offer some pointers on how they could improve this and touch this up and do this. And 
that's not what they needed. They needed somebody to come along and and say, I understand your attitude. I, I get why you see the world the way you do, because you're hopeless. And there, there's not a lot of good options out there that, in your horizon. You don't see a way out of this. Right. And, and if I can get to that, if I pull back to that level where I can say I identify with it, at least we can, it, what was the baseball analogy? We can start the way to first base, not heck with third base. We we can start going to, you know, like the first base together. But it's it's always that together that has to happen. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Your comment about the those who were, who were economically wealthy but spiritually impoverished is, is important. I think one of the things that we have learned and and is actually a part of our um, our theory of change is that well we, we mentioned earlier we have stuff to learn, but that we don't come um, you know we come in many ways impoverished as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm really interested. I don't like want to take us off topic, but uh, your Union Rescue Mission. Yeah, did, you know Andy. No, did, but did you ever cross paths with Ken McGill or Leslie Saban? Leslie sounds familiar. Leslie's my sister. Ken is her husband now, so they're Ken and Leslie oh. McGill up in Dallas. Down in what direction is Dallas from y'all? Anyway north in dallas anyway they they actually met working there at the, at the rescue mission down in los really? angeles yeah yeah wow. oh, wonderful that's yeah uh, I, so i don't know what that would have i don't know if you you would have overlapped ken was a uh, chaplain there for a while i think i was here in 80 well i'm going to date myself 86 Seven six. Okay, might have. I'll have to check with them. Sorry, no. sorry, Chris. You're editing more challenging, but anyway, this is all staying in there. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, well, speaking of third base and stuff, it's about time to shift into the third segment, the the home stretch. Does that sound good? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, um, I want to open this topic up of the the future we choose, which is a book title I like. And um, again, back to empowerment um, and the brighter side of work when you are like me in a position of economic privilege where you can really choose your work. Um, this this idea of potential is is currently very lacking in in the way so many um, of the the conversations we're having about solving problems seems to be discussed. It's more often um, a fear, you know, what do we, how the heck are we going to ha- handle this difficult thing? And Scott, your book, uh, your first book, you you may be pretty close to finishing the second one, um, but your first, first book, which I recommend to everyone, Jimmy mentioned earlier, is called Tending to Eden, Environmental Stewardship for God's People. And to me as a ecologist, I mean, this is a, this is like the best title in the world, because I really understand that biospherically, the the planetary systems are designed to renew. We're, we're just sitting on top of potential all the time. 
And I'm wondering if you can tell us in this context of choosing a good future and so forth, what you sort of mean in a nutshell about tending to Eden. Can we, can we make the future better through environmental care? Um, We've talked very broadly about stuff, but you know, you're, you're affecting communities, you're affecting society in positive ways, you know, by most metrics. But anyway, I'd, I'd just love to hear from you about that area. Yeah. Um, well, you know, first, this is a lesson that I learned from farmers in the Dominican Republic. But that uh, first we saw a vicious cycle between environmental degradation and the impoverishment of their farms. They were the land the soil was eroded, the water, you know, ran off and didn't infiltrate the soil. And so they weren't able to grow what they needed. So we had a vicious cycle. What I learned from them is that there is a possibility in that in creating a virtuous cycle and and, and actually a win-win. And I think too oftentimes when we look at human need and in environmental issues, we see it as a very much as a, a zero sum game. If people benefit, the environment is hurt. If the environment is helped, people are, are hurt. And I, I think that there is there's tremendous potential if we seek it. Well, I've got three things. If we seek out the win-win, if we approach it from a spirit of abundance rather than scarcity, I think scarcity leads us to hoard and leads us to strip the land and and uh, I you know uh, book uh, breeding sweetgrass. Robin Wall Kimmerer talks about the the principle of reciprocity. Easy for you to say, um, yeah, reciprocity. Yeah, thank you. I'm going to say that all again so that you can. T- Robin Wall Kimmerer talks about the principle of re- reciprocity and the um, you have to have a sense of abundance before you can give back. Otherwise, you want to keep and hold it all for yourself. Um, and, and so I think that that spirit of abundance is important. Um, and then I think the last thing which is is particular to us, is those we serve. And there's nearly a billion people who make their living as subsistence farmers, growing their own food, living off what they can grow, is probably the greatest untapped resource in the world. They have so much to offer, so much creativity. And, uh, and they're the ones who are pl- have planted 61 million trees, not us. I mean, We've been the catalyst, but in in some ways, but they're the ones who planted the trees, and they are, are like I say, our our partners, not our projects. So yeah, wow, beautiful. Um, can you talk a little bit about um this potential? Uh, we Jimmy and I gave you uh really for simplicity of of our preparation for talking with you, gave you the title of a, a global poverty expert. So you may not feel comfortable with that, but you are working in nine countries yes. in extremely impoverished and under-resourced communities. So I'm curious if you can talk about this idea of potential um, through the ecological means and community building that you're doing as a, as a global poverty solution, but also as a, a priority for communities of faith that they can utilize locally. Um, 
you know, the, the, the techniques, the mindset and so on and so forth that we need to support the work that you're doing and others like you, but we also need to implement where we are some of the same ideas. Can you talk about how these things cross over a little bit? Yeah. Um, I, I mean, and, and, I'm used to thinking in an international context, so it's always a bit more challenging to 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 think about how it might apply in a U.S. context. But I think you know, first of all, looking for the the win win. The other thing I think you know, as communities of faith, um, we we're good news, or we're intended to be good news for creation, right? Uh, Romans says that creation waits for the children of God to be revealed. I don't know exactly what that means, but it does mean that in some way, we, we are, as communities of faith, as Christians, are intended to be good news for creation. And in the the Great Commission, as it's given in the Gospel of Mark, is to go out and preach the good news to all of creation. So, Again, we're supposed to be good news to all of creation. What does that look like in practice? Are we in our communities of faith life-giving or death-dealing? And I think there's a lot of times where we think of this as, as, as secondary or a distraction where we can be a, a living witness to the kingdom of God, bringing good news to all of creation. So, yeah, I think that's one way that we can think about where we have church, how we re relate to our community, how we prioritize things in our community. You know, to your earlier question about global poverty, um, I where I'm definitely not an expert is at the policy level. I made a very conscious decision um, to get involved at the grassroots level, at the community level, because I thought it would be easier than policy. Um, you know, we've we've learned that it's there's a lot of uh, pitfalls there too. But if nothing else, you can see you can see the impacts, and I've seen you know, poverty dramatically reduced at the same time that I've seen, you know, forest return and rivers begin to flow again and and um, fruitfulness return to the land. And I think that is scalable. Right now, we are um, directly serving about 400,000 or 500,000 people have an impact from what we've been able to measure, have a measurable impact on just over a million people. But as I said, nearly a billion people make their living as subsistence farmers. So the potential to scale this and to serve many, that's where I'm, I get really excited. Me too. And, sorry. And it also, as it has a local impact and as it's restoring forests locally, it has a global impact, you know, um, forests and, and fertile soil sequester carbon and have a, an impact on climate change. And uh, so I've seen, again, seen local farmers, people who may not even be literate, get excited about the fact that they're having a positive impact on the climate. And they, they're aware of climate change. I hear farmers talk about how the climate is changing all the time. 
and they get excited that we're doing something not just for our community, not just digging in the dirt to try and eke out a living for my family, but I'm doing something for the planet. That's tremendous. It really is. I mean, if you just think about the the feeling of that, um, back to this bridging word, you know, you're connecting those people to a sense of global identity. Mm -hmm. Uh, And there's a lot more we could say about that. I I have one more question for you. Um, Jimmy, would you prefer to have the last word or the second to last word? I prefer the second to last word. Okay. (laughs) Well, as I heard Scott sharing and uh, his, his conscious decision not to get involved in policy, I can certainly relate to that because I kind of made the same decision at two levels, um, the political as well as, you know, there's certain things that I don't have expertise in. And what we talk about around here is that perception precedes perspective. And and really what that means is like for Chris and I are, are, you know, simpatico, we're really close. And yet I know if I brought him to a lot of evangelical churches and he shared his perspective, they would not understand it because of their perception. <laughs> and that's why my what my work is to try to change people's attitudes about how they see people with different skin color. This is the attitude that needs changing, and that's that's my role. And now as I'm hearing Scott share, I know the same thing would happen. If I were to go and share and say, well, listen, I met a guy online. He's doing all this wonderful work around here, there, and I rattle off all these countries. And because their perception of what poverty is, they would go, so? Their perspective, they would would not be able to grasp the import. And so I just wanted to say that you've ignited a fire in me today. and, and, And so thank you for this time. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. The, the inspiration I get from both of you all is, is profound. I want to repeat for the audience that Scott said very humbly a moment ago that they're helping around a million people now indirectly and around half a million people directly with their programs. Um, again, this is a man who, uh, started with one program in one country a few decades ago and has, been able to really build this incredible thing that uh, back to the the point you left on off on a moment ago scott it's exciting i just get so excited about wow look what scott did in 30 years where could we be in 30 more years because now we have a template and um the template is rooted uh, another way that you and i've talked about this and i'm wrapping up here but another way i've you and i've talked about this is it's rooted in altruism and so the the faith aspect of it um, allows for the development pieces to be about the people inside of the project, about the life, the other organisms, about the the long-term, as opposed to short-term economic returns and these kinds of things. And that is the model, that, or that is a piece that has to some degree been lacking in the way the academic world and the policy world have viewed creating opportunities for people. They've looked at it, as Jimmy said, more of like an economic uh, uh, exercise. And your model is so much more about the whole person, about the the, the families and so forth. And, and they're learning from you, obviously, over these, these last decades. Um, 
but I appreciate it so much. And and so for anyone in the audience, please check out Jimmy's work at bridgingaustin.org and jimmycalhoun.com. But please, please check out plantwithpurpose.org. Uh, look for Scott's books and so forth. And I and his other interviews and, and the other content from Plant With Purpose on the web, because again, they really are leading half a million people are being affected by this care-based work. Um, the last question I have for you, Scott, is a big, simple one. I like big, simple questions. So <clears throat> I'm wondering if you can speak to, you know, the people of faith or people in general about a, a singular priority. If you had to choose one priority in, in light of the environmental and social problems that we're trying to solve now, what would it be? You, you sort of spoke to this a moment ago when you were talking about being uh, called to share the good news. Um, but anyway, what what would your you know the one thing you wish everyone knew and and was acting on be? Wow, <laughs> um, you know we 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 spend so much time trying to hold in balance both the you know the poverty work and the and the uh, faith outreach and the uh, environmental that that pulling out one, but I I think that might be what I'm most excited about is you don't have to, um, you don't have to see it as a zero sum game. They actually, those, those three things are, um, there's a synergy between them. I think that people are, are, um, one of the reasons that people are sticking with the work is because they see it as an outgrowth of our faith. In fact, our director in, in Tanzania has told me that, that a lot of a lot of tree planting programs, they pay people to plant trees, they stop paying people to plant trees, the trees stop getting planted. Our people, or people we work with, I should say, see it as actually something they do to take care of their watershed. Um, so all that to say, probably the overarching thing is there's good news. I see good news. I see good news every single day, and I get really excited about it. I'm 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 blessed in that on Sunday I'm headed to the Dominican Republic. I'm going to be visiting some of the people and some of the families that I first saw 30 years ago when we were only working with 80 families. Um, earlier this year, I got to go to Oaxaca, Mexico, where we visited a place, a hillside. That was completely barren and we were putting these little tiny seedlings in the hillside and i remember thinking this is futile i mean like what are we doing this for and today well this spring i walked through a forest with uh, trees that were 40 feet high the the um, smell of pine needles and the trees are uh, and um birds perching in the branches and the farmer talking about the biodiversity that returned and the stream that was flowing and the deer that had come back. And um, I think too often people look at the environmental issue and issues of global poverty and look at both of those as hopeless. Just like those we serve. If we see it as hopeless, we lose our agency. It's not hopeless. Yeah, I'm excited about the future. I think I think we have an enormous um, bunch of stuff we got to do real fast together. And the hardest yes. part is doing it together. But I am very excited. I think we have a lot of uh, good uh, things figured out. 
and and leaders you know among us all over the place and then i think um to wrap up on a, a big idea for me right now you know something you each have said you know everyone is important everyone is gifted i think we're all geniuses here and we just haven't created a, a context where that can really really be um, yes utilized the the full symphony of potential or something like that um i i uh, i don't want to let you guys go just because i'm such a huge fan but to everyone listening here thank you so much for tuning in this has been a great pleasure for me to bring these two guys together and, and get them conversing and so forth and um just wishing everyone the best as we move forward in this pursuit of care thank you scott so much for your work with plant with purpose Please check out the other podcasts on allcreation.org. Hope to see you again. Thank you, Jimmy. Thank you.